Welcome to Naturally Well, a podcast to help you live a healthier and happier life with a Nordic twist. I'm your host, Kate Turner, registered dietitian, personal trainer, Nordic Naturals nutrition specialist, and owner of Live Well with Kate. Today's guest is skin specialist and nutritionist Jennifer Fugo. Jennifer is a clinical nutritionist empowering adults who have been failed by conventional medicine to beat chronic skin and unending gut challenges. She has experience working with clients with conditions such as eczema, psoriasis, rosacea, dandruff, and hives, with clientele ranging from regular folks to celebrities and professional athletes. She holds a master's degree in human nutrition from the University of Bridgeport and is a licensed dietitian nutritionist and certified nutrition specialist. Her work has been featured on Dr. Oz, Reuters, Yahoo, CNN, and many podcasts and summits. Jennifer is a faculty member of the Learn Skin platform and the host of the Healthy Skin Show. In this episode, Jennifer shares what nutrients and macronutrients, like the amount of protein and fiber, are important for your skin depending on the condition. Why gluten and dairy shouldn't always be eliminated at the first sign of a skin or gut issue and why you don't need to have a million tests done to get to the root cause of your gut or skin issues. We also discuss the role sleep and stress plays in your skin health and how you can create a better daily routine for your skin health from within. Jennifer is a true detective when it comes to helping her clients and will stop at nothing to get to the root cause. If you've struggled with skin-related issues, make sure to turn this one up. So I love Jennifer. I know we read your bio, but I'd love to hear from you a little bit more about your journey to nutrition and then how you got to specifically focus on gut and skin health. So my dad was a doctor and an eye surgeon. And so I was, I grew up in, uh, I guess, the medical, conventional medical system by default. And we had a a practice. I don't want to, it's not a, I say family practice, but it's like, my dad's name was on the building. My sister and I worked out, we pulled charts and filed and things like that from 12 years old on up. And um, so I was always kind of curious about uh, science, biology, that kind of thing. But I was also extremely creative and I loved art and design. And um, after I graduated from college, I really wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Um, and so I went home and actually worked with patients in my dad's office and became exposed to this like litany of um, so many sick people. And so um, in the process of working for him, people would come in with weird things going on. And sometimes he would honestly be like, I don't actually know what is going on with this person's health. And I would start to do some research and I would find like, oh, well, they have these blepharospasms. Well, maybe it could be a sign of a magnesium deficiency. And so that is really what started to pique my interest in nutrition. I knew I didn't want to be a doctor. My dad would have loved if I became a doctor, but that just like wasn't my jam. Um, And so I decided to start diving into that. I became a wellness coach first in 2009 and then eventually decided to go back for my master's degree in 20, I think I started in 2014 at the University of Bridgeport, working on my master's um, in human nutrition. And so um, so long story short, uh, I ended up becoming very curious in gut and skin issues. Gut first, because I had really struggled with digestive issues since I was a kid. I thought it was really normal to have bathroom problems. And um, so, you know, I, I felt like I could relate to that population. And I was just like naturally attracted to that. But with time, um, I started to get more clients, especially after I graduated from my master's program, um, people who had eczema and weird skin manifestations where they had done a lot of research online and were like, I think there could be a gut issue here. I'd like to dive into that. And when I, I, I just, I really felt for these individuals, but at the time I felt like there wasn't a whole lot of good information. And one of the reasons I related to them was because I de- developed two skin conditions in my like 20s and into my 30s. So one is hydrogenitis saporativa, which is a horrific, awful condition if you have it, you know all about it. You get these huge, um, basically the sebaceous glands in areas where you sweat most commonly, but not always. Some people will get them like outside of the groin or outside of the armpit area. I've even known people to get them on their face where the sebaceous glands swell and become extremely almost infected. They could be become almost like boils or extremely painful. 
Um, and depending on how advanced the condition is, it can require surgery. It can really damage tissue permanently by causing tunneling under the skin. And it's very visually, I mean, it will destroy the tissue, which is really sad. And it's, it's, it's a horrible condition. Um, so I developed that in my armpits. And then when I was in grad school, I developed dyshidroidic eczema on my hands. And um, I got these like clear little bubbles that would form under the skin that would flare up. I'd have this horrific flare cycle and then it would disappear. And this just kept happening. And it was it was absolutely awful because you don't realize how much you do with your hands until you can't touch things, until every like turn or bend of the fingers causes excruciating pain because the skin splits apart. So um, I did have a lot of um, empathy for those individuals when I started getting more and more of those clients. And so I began to make a transition into that the skin world because I just, I felt like the information online is not that great. Like it, when I was going through dyshidroidic eczema, my doctor was like, oh, put steroid cream on your hands and then co coat it with Vaseline, like the most impractical suggestion ever. I don't want Vaseline all over my house and I have cats. Like, what are you supposed to do with that? So, you know, there was that. Then I was like diving. I was like, I'm going to figure this out. And I, every research website, and not, I shouldn't say research, but every like functional or integrative or alternative approach was to take these supplements or use this salve. And while some of it band-aided the issue and helped me avoid medication use, nothing actually fixed it. Nothing made it go away. And I'm like, why is it that we don't have better options? So I had this idea to host a couple of events um, to interview people and dive deeper into chronic skin problems. And it exploded. Like there's never been anything like that before. And that was what spawned the Healthy Skin Show podcast that has like I mean, I'm now recording 200, episode 288, nine, 290. I mean, like, it, there's a lot of information and content now. I've had the blessing of being able to interview dermatologists, researchers, gastroenterologists, dietitians, like people that are really focused on information that is like, if you didn't connect the dots, like they're, they're, they all have their things that they're doing, but nobody is connecting those those different connections, basically. Like there's no web, spider web connecting them all. And now there's the Healthy Skin Show that helps to do that. And so in the process, um, I have a clinical practice. I work with clients all over the world virtually and um, doing clinical nutrition and helping them discover root cause issues. And I just absolutely love what I do. I'm like on a mission to change things and to partner, especially, which is really cool, to partner with doctors and dermatologists that are very forward thinking that want to get this information out but struggle because it may not be something as sexy as uh, like a biologic drug but they're they're legitimately curious and so I just I just love all of this and and figuring out what are ways to help people not just manage their skin issues but hopefully fingers crossed if we figure out what those root causes are that you may actually get to a place where you just don't have them anymore. That's amazing, Jennifer. And it always is like it's that passion from your own experience that drives you so much more to not only one, like help your clients, but to like have that mission and just want to continue going and love what you do every day. I mean, it's, it's very far and few between that there are dietitians we have on or even like just some other medical professionals that don't have their own personal story that led them specifically into the area of focus that they're in because it is that passion and drive that leads them there. So I'm curious now with saying that and talking about like trying to get to the root cause, how much does the gut play? in our skin health, typically, especially when you're working with clients, is that like the first, one of the first things you look at? And for all of our listeners, can you just explain how our gut plays a role in our skin health? Yeah, absolutely. So I do think uh, from clinical experience that the gut plays a role on a couple of fronts. First is gut function. So how well do you break down, digest, and then absorb nutrients? 
how quickly do, does nutrients and stool move through your system? Is there some sort of dysfunction there in terms of digestive capacity, gas bloating, um, those kind of symptoms that we know aren't quite right. Something's not quite right. So we want to get to a place where we have a quiet digestive system that's humming along. Although I will just, there's a little caveat to that in that the gut microbiome also plays a role in this. So those are the organisms that live in the GI tract. And that can be, we have to consider a number of factors like who lives in what area, how many of those organisms live in which area. Um, and, you know, who should it be there? Because there are times where there's, there, you could have infections. You can have hidden infections, too, that this is why I said the caveat about gut function. I, you know, we'll, people traditionally think that they have to be constipated or have diarrhea or some sort of symptoms with chronic skin issues like, oh, if my gut's a problem, I would know because I'd have gut problems. But I've worked with a lot of people who do not have any gut symptoms at all. They poop like a champ. It's smooth sailing. <laughs> and yet when we look at a, a functional or integrative um, type stool test, we can find issues under the surface. Now, why it only shows up on their skin, I don't have the answer to that at this point in time. But I, I think if there's any clinicians listening to this, that is a heads up that you can't just go by gut function to determine if there's a microbiome problem and if it warrants stool testing. And so the organisms that live there can play a role with your um, Im the, the immune response that your body is experiencing. So I, I do like to think about skin issues as an immune. A lot of them have an immune component that the issues may not actually be at the skin or on the surface of the skin. The things we see are almost symptomatic of something else going on under the surface. That's why I look at it from that root cause perspective. So in terms of the gut, yes, it's connected. Absolutely. Is it 100% gut? No. And if you are approaching every chronic skin case like it's a gut problem, you're going to fail. I hate to break the news to you, but you will fail because there's so much more. It's a more complex issue um, in terms of chronic skin issues than just uh, gut alone. We have to look at liver detoxification and specifically balancing phase one and phase two liver detox. Usually the problems or issues most of the time come from phase two and then phase three, which is elimination. Um, and then we need to look at a variety of other things, uh, nutrient status. We need to look at mitochondrial function. Uh, we have to consider stress and trauma. Um, obviously, there could be autoimmune issues involved in this, thyroid, adrenal, especially adrenal for those who've been exposed to long-term steroids, whether it's oral um, like prednisone or you've been using topical steroids because those do impact your adrenal function. So there's a lot of things to this that it, it's just a, that's the one big thing that I learned. That was the, that was the hurdle to transition from gut only to skin was that you can't just address it like a gut problem. It is a, a wider net and you have, as a, clinician or practitioner have to get smarter about digging in other areas and asking questions, especially around skin that you might not ask or care about with gut issues. And also that some people who have actual microbiome issues with skin problems take a lot longer to get better. And you may have to be more nitpicky about the, ba the balance of the organisms and what is living there than you would with a gut case. So interesting. And I'm curious, Jennifer, I know you mentioned the stool test. Mm -hmm. Do you find that you use a lot of testing in your practice to kind of figure out what that root cause is and like what system, like whether it's the immune system or it is their GI or something else that's causing the skin issue? You generally want, I think in general, in terms of functional and integrative medicine, I think. We need to stop. I, I agree, tests don't guess. I agree with that. However, I take a lot of, of um, I, I have a, an issue with the excessive amount of testing that happens in functional medicine because you don't take the time to dig through the person's case. 
and to really ask, like we go back all the way to when they were a child, even asking what was the health of your mother? Sometimes somebody knows, sometimes they don't. Sometimes if their mother's still alive, I'll ask them to go back and ask their mom. And that is that is something that can produce a lot of clues. Um, also, the there are times where you just have that spidey sense that like, you know what I mean? Like, you're like, I know that the test isn't showing this, but you have all of these symptoms. And I just, I can't shake the feeling that, for example, there's probably a parasite or there's a mold problem. So I, I, I think it's wonderful to have testing, but testing has problems. It doesn't always show everything. And it also is looking at things from one lens, one perspective, and we need that three-dimensional approach if we're really going to figure out what's going on. So in my clinic, we use um, blood labs, which we really try to get the person's physician to run through their insurance to help them financially. That's the other piece to this. This is ex extremely expensive, right? And when you have somebody buying all of these tests, you can look at, I mean, I've had clients where they've spent thousands and thousands and thousands mm -hmm. of dollars on testing that was like, why did you need to know if they had leaky gut? Of course they had leaky gut. You don't need to test someone for that. Um, so doing the things that are appropriate, that are warranted, we do a really in-depth history to help decide what to ask for. And then we usually will say, okay, what are like, A, what are you financially able to do? What are you able to afford? Some people have all the means in the world and money is no object, whereas most of our clients, money is a, a concern. And so we can pick maybe one, maybe two functional tests. So depending on what's going on in the case, that functional lab that we might ask for could be um, like a clinical stool test, or it might be an organic acid panel, depending on what we believe is going on. So if we feel like the issue is more nutrient-driven, we're probably going to go toward the organic acid testing versus uh, the stool test, and we may do that down the road. But I just, I implore clinicians, like I almost feel like I get we like to have the data, but we were also trained like this is your, our job. <laughs> we're trained to be detectives. Let's actually do that. That's I mean, John, I feel like you took all the words out of my mouth because one thing I mean, people don't realize, like you said, financially, how much these tests can cost. Mm -hmm. And I've just realized over the years like so many people are just relying on tests it's like oh i'm going to see you know a dietitian or mde a functional md and they sent out five separate tests before even really doing a thorough like nutrition questionnaire or medical history yeah. it's like okay here are your symptoms well that symptom means we're going to do this test this symptom means we're going to do that test and it's also really hard being the patient in those situations, because especially when you're suffering from something, because you don't want to say no to something, but you also don't want to get the hefty bill that you may not need. And I think the best thing you said too is like our job, and honestly, what I love the most about being a dietitian is being the detective. Mm -hmm. Like to me, that's the fun part. It's like, let's figure this out. And then eventually, if you do want, some, you know, clarification or reassurance, and you're at a point where you can do a test or, you know, an extra test, use it. And it's great that we have them. But uh, there, it's like, that's what our skills are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> that's what we need to use. Yeah. So that's really refreshing. And I'm sure it's so refreshing just for people to hear that they don't have to get every single test. No. And that there are other ways to figure out what's going on. Yeah. And I'll add to this, too, that, you know, the other issue that I have with functional and integrative medicine is where someone will run a bunch of labs and not explain them to you when they come back. And if you're asking somebody to spend money on testing that you've recommended, you should be willing and able to take the time to explain it to them. It doesn't mean that you have to teach them how to read the test. But most clients who've seen other I get a lot of people who have seen functional practitioners who never had their labs ever explained to them. So they have no idea what they say. They don't even know what is wrong. They were just given these like cookie cutter protocols that I 
can very easily recognize where they probably came from because they all look the same and they're not effective for what's actually wrong with the person. Um, and, you know, you should have that expectation, too, that when you work with someone, functional is great, but I hate to break the news to everybody. There's literally no recommendations from my understanding from everybody who has gone through IFM for chronic skin conditions. They're basically all treated as gut problems, which they're not fully gut problems. They're partly gut problems, but not fully gut problems. It's a lot of times why the protocols don't work. So you want to know that the person who is doing the testing and who is who is helping you understand it and what you need to do about it has the experience and that lens to look at it through your particular condition. Because if you don't, like I've seen things on stool testing where the doctor or the, you know, the other practitioner missed or said, oh, these weren't a big deal. They, I know from experience that they are a big deal for chronic skin problems. And so that's why, like, I would never read a test for, like, I wouldn't have a client who had MS and read testing. I don't, I don't understand. I don't know what would be abnormal in MS or rheumatoid arthritis. Like, that's not my focus or diabetes. Like, I just, I don't do that. So, if you're expecting everyone to understand the nuance of testing based on your particular condition, my recommendation would be to find someone who really understands it because the way that I would read and educate a client on a stool test when they have a just let's just say diarrhea and chronic gut problems is going to be extremely different, believe it or not, from somebody who has chronic eczema or rosacea or severe psoriasis because there are different pieces to that puzzle that are just not the same for a gut problem. Yeah, no, it makes it makes total sense. And I know even this next question, Jennifer, it's hard because there's, right, like there's so many different skin issues someone can be experiencing. But have you found if you can make some generalizations, but like, right, let's put the asterisk that this may not be specific if you're listening and you have a skin condition but in terms of like what we eat and what we put in our body I know I definitely want to get into like some nutrients to focus on but just in terms of like macronutrients and you know talking about fiber and protein have you found certain ways of eating that are supportive of the skin and let's say a large handful of skin issues yes uh, protein is king in my book. And I think it's unfortunately um, not as, I think we assume we get enough protein when most people do not. Oh my Always. goodness. I mean, it's crazy. Whenever I ask a client, I'm like, you know, because before we actually go through a, a typical day and take them like, because I'm curious, I'm like, do you feel like you're getting enough protein? Oh, yeah, 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 totally. We go through it and it's like one egg in the morning. Maybe like two ounces of chicken at lunch. And I'm like, okay. But I have, it's rare that I've ever met someone that's eating enough protein. So go on. Sorry. <laughs> yes. No, protein is a big problem. And um, part of it is because people don't know the practical way to identify how much protein they're eating. So they think one egg is sufficient for breakfast. You know, and I'm like, that's only six grams. If you're going to hit the 70 to 80 gram mark, and that's for that is for somebody who's not super active, who's not an athlete, who doesn't work out. That's just like an individual with chronic skin issues. I'm like, one egg, that's you're at six grams. That's a huge deficit. How are you going to make that up throughout the rest of the day? And then they'll say, well, I have a piece of salmon. I'm like, okay. So even if you hit like six ounces of salmon, so maybe you're up around like, I don't know, 30, 32 grams, you're still, I mean, we're still in the 30s. How are you going to get there? So um, I think one problem is we've been heavily marketed to by a lot of these more, and I listen, I love plants. I am a home gardener. I, I want to be very cautious about this because I get people are very funny about food and diet and all that stuff. I, I have a garden. I am really big on eating plants. So no, no, I'm not, this is not a dig at plants, but the, the more plant-based movement, vegan movement has unfortunately convinced people that they don't need 
as much protein. And whether that was intentional or not, that's how it has come across. And a lot of people think that they have muscles. So we can just tap into those supplies of amino acids. And that's not a good thing. You don't want to waste your muscles. Um, And also you have thyroid hormone that requires an amino acid to be formed. I mean, you need these for neurotransmitters to make enzymes, to digest things. You need them to make immunoglobulins. So protein is really crucial and not just consuming enough protein, but again, back to that gut function, making sure it gets digested and then absorbed. So protein's king. I would say like um, in terms of fiber, um, fiber, fibers hit or miss because it depends on what you have going on. Some individuals who have like SIBO may not be able to tolerate fiber um, and may need a lower FODMAP diet while you clean up some of that mess and rebalance the GI tract. But I think fiber is incredibly important. I think the most crucial piece is just a diverse diet. I think that is one of the most missing things that we oftentimes want to fit everything into what is what should a diet look like. I'd say If you really want kind of a template, the Mediterranean diet is pretty good. There's a lot of research on that. But I say that with the sensitivity that not everyone's like cultural diet may look like that. And so I think we have to take a step back from and be really careful about stigmatizing foods as good and bad um, and encouraging people to include to include more things that can diversify their diet, to diversify their nutrients, to diversify the different types of fibers and things that they're being exposed to, to do their, the best that they can given their budget, the time that they have available to them, to incorporate in wholer foods, um, while also being mindful of allergies and other concerns. Um, I do not subscribe to the idea that elimination diets are the way to cure all disease. I actually think, and I've seen this historically, especially in the skin community, that elimination diets create a lot of food fear. They can contribute to an incredible amount of disordered eating. They can be extremely triggering for people who have a history of anorexia, bulimia, um, binge eating, et cetera. Um, And I work with people who have literally tried every diet that is recommended and their skin has only gotten worse. So if you are of the mindset that somebody just needs an elimination diet to get better and that if they don't get better on an elimination diet, that somehow they're not doing it hard enough and they need to eliminate more, I would really highly encourage you to rethink that because it not only is, it puts a huge, um, again, it's difficult to get protein when you keep cutting out protein sources, right? When you cut out all legumes because they're inflammatory. <laughs> you cut out, you know, different um, nuts and seeds because they could be inflammatory. Then you, then you can't eat beef and you can't eat pork and you can't. I mean, at, the, at what point do we ma- we're making it difficult for people to eat? Um, and in my practice, we work with people who um, have been on elimination diets. We work to integrate food back in. And many clients whose skin is healing up and improving significantly, and we have before and after photos, are not eliminating almost anything. So if you think that that's the only way to get there, I'm telling you it's not. And I, I think we also have to consider the mental health and well-being of a person because there's a, a danger to pitting them against food, especially in this nutrition world. Food is our new, our nourishment. It's it's what connects us to our family, to our heritage, to our community, to friends. I and mean, think about it: when you have to go and sit at a table and you can't eat anything, that makes you feel awful. It means yeah. that you're not a part of the group. And I, I just I think we have to rethink the way that we're using an elimination diet as a tool. There's a time and a place, but um, I think they're too extensively used and too too we lean on them too much. Um, instead of encouraging other habits and looking deeper for other issues. It can be so hard to remember to take your supplements every day, but sometimes all you need is to look forward to taking them. Nordic Naturals gummies are a convenient and delicious way to help you stick to your supplement routine. Gummies also have a higher bioavailability than capsules, helping your body absorb more nutrients more easily. And if you're looking to cut down on your sugar intake this year, Nordic Naturals offers a wide variety of zero-sugar gummies for both adults and children. My personal favorite are the zero-sugar curcumin gummies with their delicious mango taste. 
Head to Nordic.com and use the code NaturallyWell15 for 15% off all Nordic Natural Zero Sugar Gummies for adults and children. The stress of doing an elimination diet? Your skin issues could end up being worse because you're, which, you know, we'll get into, but the role of stress in it all and skin issues is big and can be bigger than what you're eliminating. Um, which I do want to get into kind of because I feel like so many times people are like, oh, just get rid of gluten and dairy first and then let's just see how it goes. But I wanted to ask you really quick to go back on protein is would you recommend for anyone listening like what how many grams of protein would you say they should be aiming for at each meal just as a goal so they have an idea? I think a minimum would be and this is for adults, by the way, I don't work with kids yeah. or babies. So please don't apply this to that that group that I, I don't know. That's not my area of expertise. Um, but with adults, I would say maybe shoot for like 25 to 30 grams per meal. It's exactly, you know? it's exactly what and, I tell my clients too. Yeah. And learn practically how to eyeball things. If I hate, yeah. people are like, do I have to weigh things? No. I'm like, no, that's like, it's like sucking the life out of you and the joy out of eating. And the so, stress again. Yeah. It, it increases your stress. I've never met someone who's weighing their food that is happy to be weighing their food no <laughs> i will not do that i will not ask a client to do that um so i think that's a big factor and then also getting creative you know based on someone's you know for example are they vegan are they vegetarian what are they willing to do do they need supplemental mm -hmm. i mean sometimes some people just cannot I work with a lot of people that have a lot of allergies and have restricted a lot. And so asking them to add everything back in right away is A, can be extremely triggering and scary. And B, might not be realistic. And where we need to give their time, their system time, we might have to correct some issues, especially like with histamine intolerance. You're not going to be able to just throw back in high histamine foods. And that's one case where supplemental versions of protein can be really challenging because um, protein powder generally speaking, is and like gelatin and collagen and bone broth are contraindicated for histamine intolerance because they're high in histamine. And so, again, it's about that person's case. It's about addressing them and meeting them where they are. And so for some clients, like I had a client yesterday who she's veg she was vegan. I've gotten her to start eating some fish because she just really could not on a vegan diet. She's been on that for years and she's very nutrient depleted. She was able to add back in some fish, but she's just still not meeting the the protein requirement. And I'm like, look, can you try, like, would you be open to marine collagen? Even if you did like two scoops a day, that'd be like an extra 28 grams. It's not perfect, but it's better than nothing. And can we maybe do like a protein powder? Again, I'm not, I think whole foods are wonderful, but there is a time and a place for supplemental nutrients. And, um, you know, she was open to that. She was willing to give that a try because she's not, comfortable enough yet to start adding like beans back in because she for some reason eliminated beans i you know people read stuff online and in these books and mm -hmm. they don't they don't know whether it's for them or not but they take the food out anyway and then they get stuck where they're too afraid to add it back so um i think we we have to meet people where they are and you know that's why i mentioned like i was really interested in in art before because i really applied that creativity to where i am now and it's so important to think outside of the box. You can't just cookie cutter everything. Everybody's different. Like, I can't swallow pills. Do you know how many dietitians I've worked with on my health who hand me a protocol list? And I'm like, I can't swallow any of this. Do you have another option? I'm happy to do some read. And I end up having to figure out what I can take because they have no idea whether you can open up these capsules or not. And I've had to like put some sort of protocol based off of what they wanted together because I can't take any of this. So we have to be able to meet people, whether they can swallow pills, whether they can tolerate certain types of foods, depending on their diet and what their goals are, and just help them step by step, baby steps, move towards um, a better place of uh, balance and health. Yeah. I mean, Jennifer, everything you're saying, I'm like, I'm sure everyone listening right now is like, oh, this sounds so great. Jennifer, when can I sign up? <laughs> um, in terms of like elimination, something else you said that I wanted, I always like to mention because I, I do think people often think or they may go to a practitioner who puts them on an elimination diet, not knowing that eventually 
they're supposed to add those foods back in. Yes, if they find certain foods are very triggering for them after that elimination, they add it back in. Then you have to figure out what to do with those foods and and how you're going to work with that. But elimination diets are not meant to be a forever. I have had so many clients who've come to me and they're still on an elimination diet from two years ago. And I'm like, did they ever follow up with you? They're like, no, you just, you're supposed to, you know, I was supposed to eliminate these foods and I have. And it is, it's like that fear then creeps in when you're like, okay, well, we're going to try adding some of those back. And which, you know, Jennifer, the longer the time period that you go with eliminating, it's harder for your body to allow some of those foods back in. Like even for someone, which I want to get into kind of like gluten and dairy and, you know, it's like the first two things people eliminate when they have skin issues. And for some people, it, it can help them. And I'm curious to hear your thoughts. But for some people that just heard gluten's bad and have eliminated it for so long, and then they eat a few things with gluten, they have a horrible reaction. Or same thing with dairy. And it's not good to, like, if you find maybe certain foods, and I am really curious your thoughts, but if you find certain foods are, you're sensitive to them, let's say, or right? Like, they don't make you feel amazing. But in terms of like, let's, we'll use gluten and dairy as the example. Having them every so often, at least, just to reintroduce them to your system rather than completely giving them up. And then one day, you know, you don't have celiac disease. So you're not like, okay, I'm really going to be off limits on gluten. But then you have that one roll that one day and it wreaks complete havoc mm-hmm. on your system and you feel awful. Um, what are your thoughts on eliminating? you know, dairy and gluten. And then if people like anyone listening that has for a long time, do you suggest they start to add it back in or? Well, the first thing I'll also add to this conversation is that unnecessary food eliminations. um, Currently, research is showing uh, that we can actually develop IgE allergies to food that was unnecessarily eliminated. This happened to a client of mine this past fall. She had read online that eggs are bad for eczema, and she eliminated eggs. And so she was off of eggs for, I don't know, a year, two years, something. And we were working with her to reincorporate foods back in, and we asked her to incorporate eggs. She had a huge swell up of her face, her mouth, her eyes. And when she sent me the photos and told me what happened, I was like, oh, I think you need to see your dermat, your allergist, excuse me. And so she went to the allergist and he wasn't even going to test her. He thought, well, you know, it might have been the eggs. Who knows? Turns out she had a severe egg allergy and she had to walk out of the office with an EpiPen. And she was devastated because now she has an allergy to eggs she never had before. Does this happen to everyone? No, but be aware that it can happen. Um, and as I said, this is current research from at least the last two years. So so for those who are practicing functionally, are we following this research? Because this is really important to consider. We don't want to trigger an allergy unnecessarily in someone, especially as an adult. It's hard to get rid of it. You may never get rid of it. Um, so that's something to consider. Uh, the second thing you had asked about gluten and dairy. So for me, I look at them differently. So gluten has a lot of research on it that it increases gut permeability. Most of the people I work with already have, like, do you have leaky gut? Yes. <laughs> I mean, their guts are a mess a lot of times. I mean, it's um, also like, Jennifer, I feel like, uh, not say, but like, who does it now? I mean, I can't tell you how many clients I get now. It's like leaky gut, leaky gut. And it's uh, it's really alarming. It is. It is. Um, And I think, too, it's like it's who you work with, you know. So for me, I'm just like, well, this is the norm and it's been ignored for a long time. And these poor individuals have been showing symptoms elsewhere and probably blowing off GI symptoms and whatnot and normalizing that IBD and I or not IBD, IBS is normal. Well, it's normal to have gas and bloating and some diarrhea. It's just IBS, you know. But um, so usually I do ask clients to limit or remove gluten. Um, But I'm very careful in my wording. I don't ever say gluten's bad, gluten's toxic, gluten's inflammatory. I don't use any of those words. I just say, look, research shows us, and we know this from Dr. Alessio Fisano, who's like the godfather of celiac disease research. And and he does, I believe he's still, he is working here in the United States, but he's from Italy. 
And we know that it increases gut permeability for sure. And everybody has a level of tolerance. And, and so while somebody who doesn't have all these health issues might be perfectly fine, like my husband consuming gluten, great. But if you are someone who's dealing with something, I'd like to try and contain as much as possible, like what's going on in the GI tract. I'd like to try to keep it there as much as possible so it's not causing a bigger, bigger systemic fire. And so um, oftentimes we'll ask people to eliminate gluten. And then eventually, as they're getting better, especially if they have had no prior issues with gluten, I want them to slowly start integrating things in. So maybe starting with some fermented sourdough bread, um, maybe trying some older ancient versions of wheat like kamut and einkorn, spelt, um, and see how they tolerate it. You know, um, I, I mean, I have unfortunately been one of those people who has never been able to reintroduce gluten. I've been gluten-free since 2008. It, I, I don't have, as far as I know, celiac disease, um, but it has caused a lot of problems in my health and I have just, I'm one of those people that has been stuck this way, you could say. And if I could eat, I mean, I'm, I'm Italian. If I could go back to eating like homemade pasta, I would do that. Um, but it's just not in the cards for me. Maybe, maybe later in life. I don't know. <laughs> but with dairy, it's hit or miss. Like some people are reactive to it. Some people are not. I love dairy. I'm not going to. My feeling is this. If. Why do I ask other people to remove things and demand that they remove them because they're quote unquote inflammatory and toxic? Like I have clients that are that literally have these tremendous before and after photos who ate dairy, who ate eggs because they had eczema, who ate nightshades or ate red meat and had psoriasis. I think I know that there are coin diets for these particular conditions, and maybe for some individuals, there are those things, those nuanced things in their diet that they might react better to or worse to. We're, we're all like that. That's why diet should be unique to yeah. you. Um, but I think I, I just I think the language we use really has to change. I know that it's great to motivate people and to be like, it's inflammatory. Like, but you're triggering their fear. You're inciting fear around nourishment. That's what happens, and it sticks with them beyond that elimination diet. So I think the language is the bigger thing that I take um, issue with here. Yeah, no, it's so important. It's, it's important to really make clients feel, right? Like when they leave a session, you don't want them to leave stress. You want them to leave encouraged and mm -hmm. Like you have their back as well, rather than and you're, they're learning something. You're not just telling them what to do. Um, I'm curious, Jennifer, in terms of like the nutrient side of it, are there specific nutrients you find that hit a lot of different skin issues and deficiencies that people just commonly have that are related to skin? Um, I mean, we already talked about the macronutrients. Uh, mm -hmm, yeah. So that's, I think fiber, I'll just, I'll just throw in there. A lot of times fiber is not considered like a nutrient, but I do think fiber is really important, especially for gut, your, your gut health. Um, so, I mean, I guess you could find somebody who's like a big proponent of carnivore and they would say it differently, but I do believe that fiber is really important for healthy gut flora and the byproducts like short-chain fatty acids and whatnot. In terms of nutrients, I would say that, I mean, I do think that vitamin D is important. I would argue that most people don't look at vitamin A. They forget about vitamin A, and vitamin A is so important. And this is, this is like, I can't get every doctor to run vitamin A because sometimes they're like, why? Why are you adjusting for that? But the truth is, if most people are deficient in vitamin D, they're probably deficient in vitamin A. Because most of the sources that are high vitamin A sources, like liver, I don't eat liver. I think liver is disgusting. So, and I can't swallow pills. So how am I getting yeah, that? Yeah, there goes those beef liver pills exactly. for you. <laughs> well, see, this is important to ask, uh -huh. like, why, like, my particular case is a little weird, but yeah. it's okay. So um, I think vitamin A is a much overlooked uh, nutrient for sure. It's really important for, obviously, eyesight. It's important for thyroid health. It's also important for um, your GI tract and the immune response in the GI tract. So that's one nutrient that I think is important. 
um, and that I tend to look for. I also really find it fascinating that, I mean, we've had clients who have folate issues, folate deficiency specifically. Um, we see that a lot with, I, to go back to the carnivore, um, we see that a lot with carnivore clients. Um, and usually the red flag is that they do not eat liver because liver is basically the main source of folate in a carnivore diet. So if they tell us they don't eat liver and they don't like it, I'm like, uh-oh. And if, inevitably, those individuals have a folate deficiency. Folate deficiency can cause not only, um, uh, I would say, more like um, mental health and mental functioning issues, because we know now it, it can really be helpful, um, especially in depression. But in terms of your skin, a folate deficiency can actually exacerbate skin rashes. So it's really important to look for folate, for B12, um, I even like to use like homocysteine as the way to look at B6 to make sure that we're getting those Bs in to help balance out our red blood cells. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, this is like so, so funny, many- Jennifer, too. All of the, everything you're listing, I'm like, that's in liver. That's in liver. I know. <laughs> I'm like, know. if we could all just eat liver. It's actually, it's funny. It's what I fed my son's like first pureed foods because I'm like, he doesn't really know the difference between taste and stuff. No. I'm like, Here's some pureed liver. And like he would eat it right up. And I'm like, God, I wish I could eat this. And I would, li- I mean, I would get up when I would make it, serve it. <laughs> but it's such a powerhouse. <laughs> it is. It is. And I would also argue that I I was very slow to change my tune on minerals and salt intake, not salt in terms of sodium, but like the Mm -hmm. full spectrum salt on all the minerals associated with it. I was slow because, you know, we have been told for a really long time that salt is the devil. Salt's the problem. And um, I have a number of colleagues that I'm so glad like influenced me. I saw what they were doing um, in drastically, in many cases, increasing the amount of whole foods, so salt, that people were consuming, looking at minerals like potassium, sodium, chloride, magnesium, and like all of the minerals. Um, and I started experimenting with it. And I gave it a go for a year, a year, because I was like, I want to see if my doctor says anything about my blood pressure. My blood pressure's been fine. They're always like, you have great blood pressure. I'm like, Okay, well, y'all say that if, I, if you consume this much soda, you're going to have high blood pressure. I clearly don't. So we can't. We have to be careful. I mean, honestly, if somebody's on certain medications, we have to be cautious, like certain diuretics and 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 such. But I I think it's worthwhile to consider digging a little deeper into minerals if you mm-hmm. haven't done so because they're so involved in so many. And I'm talking beyond like selenium and iron and yeah even magnesium and zinc we we focus on this like small amount of and and obsession with calcium should we do it should we not but like some of these others are so crucial you know you need an appropriate amount of sodium and chloride to be able to make stomach acid um you need and to be hydrated to be hydrated i I can't tell you i would say probably 90 percent of my clients they we they're on some type of like you know electrolyte packet that has more sodium and i can't tell you it's like they're more hydrated we can tell by their stools mm-hmm. and their bowel movements um they just feel better yes like it's i mean i can even say like when i take my electrolyte packet i try and take at least one each day and i notice a huge difference just in my energy level like i'm always like it's just the this natural energy boost and it doesn't take much no. Nope. You and know? I'm the same. I noticed a huge improvement, especially like I'll do, I mean, that's what I'm sipping on now. <laughs> has some vitamin C. So a lot, my trick has been, so for anybody, if you're if you're wanting to kind of play around with this, obviously there's different um, iterations of products out there on the market. You could also like just as a really simple way to test it is play around with some sea salt. And um, I, I, I personally like to do about a half of a tablespoon. I know that sounds a lot. That sounds like a lot to people who are like, what? But to those of us that are in the know are like, no, it's fine. Um, But I like to do about a half of a tablespoon. And then sometimes I'll just add like a greens powder that I really like to the water, about 30 ounces of water. And for, you know, this is a trick too, for somebody who has low blood pressure 
or healthy blood pressure and they don't have any pre-existing conditions that would concern you in doing this and they're not on any meds that would be a factor. It's like the reality is people drink more fluids when it's flavored, period. So if someone will not drink water and you're constantly on them, you're like, you have to increase your water intake. They will drink more flavored water than they will water. And so it's a great way to not only get the nutrients into them and the hydration because the electrolytes pull the water into their system to better hydrate them. And they're not peeing all the time, which is another plus. <laughs> um, but, you know, they're, you're getting them to drink more water, which they need to do anyway. So I, I think there's a lot of, again, meeting somebody where they are and, um, you know, if they're not on board with necessarily buying a particular product that's an electrolyte powder or something, or if it's not enough, you can also sometimes just add sea salt to it. Just like figure out what the ratio is. Um, but that's like my my little thing. But I there's a lot out there that you can try. There's different whole foods varieties and whatnot. Lots of yeah, lots of mineral mocktails out there. Yes. Um, I love it. Okay. Well, I know Jennifer, we are running out of time, but I wanted to have you just touch very so slightly on the role of stress and sleep in our skin health. What would you recommend for someone in terms of like good quality sleep? What does that look like? Um, and I mean, I know stress is such a beast, but just I guess the impact, just letting people know and having them understand the impact that stress, which I we talk about this a lot that like we have to remember that stress isn't only just like, you know, stress from our jobs, stress from work. It's like environmental stressors, like stress mm -hmm. that we also can't control as much, but just yeah. what the impact of that is on our skin health. Well, with skin health, there's a lot that has to do with the, something called catastrophizing. And it happens a lot, especially when people get really itchy. They start to catastrophize. There's like this whole, like there's research on this. Um, there is a lot of research that shows, too, that those external stressors, I mean, we have a nerve that connects our brain to our GI tract called the vagus nerve. And so if you have mental stress, it can impact what you're experiencing within your GI tract. And also there is research showing that depending on what your microbiome makeup is, that can create stress that you experience as anxiety, depression, etc., mentally and emotionally. So, yes, we have things in the external world that we can't necessarily control. And I think there's a lot to be said for building resist uh, resiliency, whether you talk with some, I mean, I think talk therapy is wonderful. I mean, we can talk about journaling and breathing exercises and going for walks and doing Tai Chi and all of that stuff. And, and even for some individuals, like prayer is very meditative and soothing for them. But I also do think that there's something to be said for therapy itself to help us learn to question the narratives that we even have in our head that tell us that we're not worthy enough, that we're not good enough, not, that we can't trust the process. Um, because whatever health condition you have, if, if you feel like every hiccup and even potential flare-up or setback is like stepping into quicksand and you are quickly drowning, it's really hard to follow protocols and, and be successful because your system is going to undermine like your your mental and mind your mindset basically is going to undermine your ability to stick with things. So I do think there's a lot to that. Um and stress can impact the way that we sleep. But stress or stress sleep sleep is really important um because we find that with skin there is a circadian rhythm that skin has specifically. And at night, there is an increase in what's known as trans-epidermal uh, water loss. So we lose more moisture at night than we do during the day in the skin, which is one reason why it can dry out and become more itchy at night. That's just one reason why. And so we really try to encourage clients to change habits and to add things in to try to get better sleep because the compa the compounding impact of not sleeping well night after night can be devastating, not only for just your energy levels and your ability to function and feel well during the day, but also for your skin to heal. So, well, yes, I think it's great to say don't watch TV, 
um, before bed and put on your, you know, don't look at the blue light and stare at your phone and read and all these things. I think those are great and wonderful. But some people have some concerns where like maybe magnesium can be helpful to help them wind down. Maybe they do need a little bit of melatonin to help. Maybe there's some other herbs that could be helpful for their system based on what, you know, they're experiencing. Um, you know, for for some clients, like we also are trying to help them correct, uh, like those who are exposed to a lot of steroids, they're, they may have a cortisol awakening response that's extremely blunted. So they don't feel good at all. And um, that is tricky because it's like having to retrain the body to get its HPA access running correctly again and functioning correctly again. So I think it depends on the severity, but anything that you can do to encourage clients. Um, and I think, you know, I don't know, I, this is a whole other conversation about melatonin, but I think that um, there's been a lot of, uh, there's been a lot of negative speak about the use of melatonin. And I think that if we consider maybe microdosing melatonin yeah. instead of the larger doses, you know, again, if it's somebody who can't sleep versus you take a little bit of melatonin either before bed or if you wake up in the middle of the night, just enough to get you back to sleep. And so you sleep and you get like six or seven, eight hours of rest. I don't understand why we're demonizing someone who may need that. To that may be a huge yeah, game no. changer over the course of many months or a year. And what a lot of people don't realize, Jennifer, is that even just taking like a half a milligram more of melatonin than you would need can actually have the opposite effect on your sleep. So you can actually, mm -hmm. I mean, you can feel so tired, but you can't fall asleep. You could also experience night terror. So for some people that are like, yep. I don't take melatonin because I have the worst dreams ever. Yeah. You took too much. And that's why, like, we always say start with like a half a gram and go up by a half a gram, never more, because some people a half a gram is all they need yeah. or one milligram. Um, but yeah, that's a big misconception because some people are like, Oh, I really can't sleep. I need 10 milligrams. <laughs> oh, I really can't sleep. I need five. And that's just way too much. Um, yeah. But thank you so much, Jennifer. This has been so great. We love to end every episode with a little rapid fire Q&A. So first thing that comes to mind, um, what is your favorite de-stressing practice or tool? Oh, I would say I love to do some breathing exercises and like a meditation that's guided in front of my red light. Love it. Uh, coffee or tea? Both, but I'm really into espresso right now. Oh, um, okay. This one's my favorite and hopefully it's yours. What is your favorite home-cooked meal? Um, I love, so it should be no shock that I did mention I was Italian <laughs> earlier. So I would say if I had to make a meal, I would say probably making some uh, spaghetti carbonara. But I, I would, I would use gluten-free pasta. Gluten -free, but yeah, yeah, I would make spaghetti carbonara. The last time when I finally had it after many years, because I couldn't eat, I, I, chicken eggs and me aren't quite friends yet. I'm hoping to get them reintroduced. It's been a long journey with eggs, um, but I can do duck eggs, and I was able recently to make carbonara with duck eggs, and it was just like such a treat to be able to have it. So that's probably so delicious too. Well, Jennifer, where can people find you, connect with you, learn more, um, and work with you if they're interested? Well, you can find me on the Healthy Skin Show podcast, which is available on all podcasting apps. And you can also go to healthyskinshow.com. There's every episode is there along with transcripts and all the resources and everything for the episode. And then um, in terms of connecting with me for if you are interested in working with me and my practice... Um, you can just go through healthyskinshow.com. It'll take you right to the website. The website's called Skinterrupt, which is harder to spell than Healthy Skin Show. Um, and we have a work with me uh, section that you can go through and read through the information and see if it's a good fit. And I'm also on Instagram. Um, so if anyone wants to check out what I share on a daily basis, uh, you can do so. And that's where most that's that's the the one place where I am that I like hang out on personally. So. Yeah, no, you have so much good info on your Instagram. It's like you could just continue watching your reels over and over again. Well, Jennifer, thank you so much. Hopefully we will get to connect again soon and, you know, kind of go through some down some more rabbit holes <laughs> and get to know a little bit more about our skin health. Awesome. Thank you for having me. 
This week's actionable step is to aim to consume Jennifer's suggested 30 grams of fiber a day, which is about 10 grams at each meal, and at least 25 grams of protein at each meal to support your skin and gut health. And honestly, I couldn't agree more. Thank you for listening to Naturally Well by Nordic Naturals. And remember, you can catch some of our episodes of the podcast on our Naturally Well YouTube channel. For something to do in between episodes, follow me on Instagram at LiveWellWithKate, where I typically live on my stories, providing a variety of daily health and wellness tips. Naturally Well is hosted by myself, Kate Turner, and produced by Andrew Steven. If you have any questions, please send us an email at podcast at nordicnaturals.com, and we hope to answer your question on air. If you like this show, please tell a friend, share an episode, and leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.